The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are once again found in the book of First. We'll be looking at First Timothy chapter five, beginning in verse seventeen through twenty-five. First Timothy five, seventeen through twenty-five. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer ages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even though even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Once again, please pray with me. Lord, we need your grace. For who is sufficient to to follow all the instructions of Scripture? Certainly you, Christ, did fulfill all the demands of the law. You were without sin, and yet, God, we admit that we, we still abide in a, in a corrupted, weakened flesh that needs to be redeemed. It needs to be glorified. And we look forward to that day when we will be free from sin, to sin no more, to no longer feel this tension between spirit and flesh where we will do the very things that we want to do and no longer will be prone to be drawn away from you. And so, Father, until that time, we need your grace to to give us insight, give us understanding, to renew our minds. Lord, just feed our souls. We're so easily discouraged. Um, We're so easily drawn into selfish ambition and pride and we can be so cruel with our tongues. Lord, the, the, the folly abounds. Lord, we don't want to pretend that it doesn't. And again, we, we lift these things because we need your help. So we ask that you would work through your word this morning to give grace to each one of us, that we might see where we need to repent, that our hearts might be refreshed and encouraged as we just hear your words as they're presented to us in your scriptures. And Lord, that you'd bind us together as a body of believers in genuine love. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, we're in the midst of uh, a lengthy series in First Timothy. Uh, we're in chapter 5. And Paul is in the midst of explaining to the uh, church of Ephesus and Timothy uh, how the church should function in light of the fact that they are all part of the household of God. They are family, so to speak. They're all part of God's family. And therefore, they should treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, and sisters 
um, they, the, the younger women as sisters and older women as mothers. And they should also care for widows. So they should be willing to provide for their needs, uh, meeting whatever need uh, they might have, especially if they're part of their own family or if they have nobody to care for them, the church should be willing to, to take them um, under their wing and to provide for those women as well. And the younger women, of course, under 60, who have been widowed should be encouraged to be remarried um, and to continue in the, in the path that Lord has uh, paved for them. In verse 17, Paul then turns to how they should treat elders uh, within the church. And he speaks to four ways which elders should be treated. Um, they need to be honored, protected, rebuked, and they need to be appointed carefully. So let's just look at the, the first one in verse 17, honoring elders. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So he's speaking of honor here that the word uh, in the Greek is tamao. Uh, it's a general word for honor. In fact, if you look at uh, chapter six, verse one, uh, it says, let slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So it just it refers to respect, um, esteeming them. Uh, but the word can also specifically refer to paying, uh, providing for somebody uh, through payment. And this is how, of course, the word is used earlier in chapter five in regard to widows. And uh, even I think in, in, in regard to uh, honoring our father and mother, according to how Jesus uses that in his instruction to his disciples. And so saying that elders should be considered worthy of double honor, Paul means that they should be honored in two ways. One, they should be honored in light of their work. Uh, for the church, as Paul says in first Thessalonians five, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That word translated esteem them very highly is the same word used here. Right? Tomorrow, honor them because of their work. Secondly, it means that they should be financially provided for. Paul defends this assertion in the verses that follow. But before we look at that, I just want to draw our attention to specifically who Paul is referring to. Notice that he says those who rule well are those who should receive such double honor. On that, that word rule is where we get the, the, the term uh, uh, elder rule, referring to church polity. So a church that is led by elders versus being congregational or just a singular pastor, uh, that's called a church that functions according to elder rule. And for legitimate reasons, people are often uncomfortable with that because the elders are ruling as if they were some sort of you know, police force. But the, the, the phrase itself has biblical roots, I want to point out. But honestly, uh, rule is probably not the best translation for this word, but rather leadership. Uh, the Greek word is prohistemi. Uh, it's actually not a, a common word, uh, but it, it's a, it, it essentially means to lead. Literally, it means to be at the front, to, to lead the charge, so to speak. So it, it, it signifies leadership by example uh, versus simply by command. Uh, it's similar to uh, the motto of the 82nd Airborne, right? First in, last out. We lead is the idea. 
As Jesus told his disciples, as you well know, in Mark 10, 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and they, their great ones exercise authority over them. Same word. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man cannot be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sorry, it's not the same word used. The point there is that they, they're exercising their getting people to do what they want. The Gentile rulers manipulate people for their own ends. But the contrast, as Jesus tells his disciples, is that Christian leaders rather should lead by example. Show people how to follow Christ by doing, uh, by caring for people, not manipulating people for your own ends. He was saying the nature of church leadership, again, is not lording it over others, but caring for them, just as he led. He was making the same point to his disciples as we saw last week in John 13 when he washed their feet. And he said, if then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you then also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Like, so he's explicit. You want to know what it's like to lead in the church, right? These are kind of Jesus parting words to his disciples. Last night on earth, he wants to clearly communicate to his future leaders who are going to be leading after him what such leadership should look like. It does not look like the Gentiles lead. It looks like humble service. Like washing feet. So shepherds can't serve in isolation. Right? They, they, they need to be with the people they're leading. They're not just going to be uh, in, in the distance. General Harold G. Moore, a Vietnam combat veteran, the author of uh, We Were Soldiers uh, Once and Young. His story is kind of immortalized in the movie after that name. He has this uh, regarding his expectation of leaders. That's what he has to say. In the American Civil War, it was a matter of principle that a good officer, uh, officer rode his horse as little as possible. There were sound reasons for this. If you're riding and your soldiers are marching, how can you judge how tired they are, how thirsty, how heavy their packs weigh on their shoulders? I applied the same philosophy in Vietnam, where every battalion commander had his own command and control helicopter. Some commanders used their helicopter as a personal mount. I never believed in that. You had to get on the ground with your troops to see and hear what was happening. You have to soak up firsthand information for your instincts to operate accurately. Besides, it's too easy to be crisp, cool, and detached at 1,500 feet. Too easy to demand the impossible of your troops. Too easy to make mistakes that are fatal only to those souls far below in the mud, the blood, and the confusion. Right? He recognized it, that this is a principle that makes sense just in everyday life, in warfare. Not that warfare is everyday life, but it's a, it's a general principle. It's true. The best leaders are with the people they're leading. They lead by example. It's not simply enough just to command, just to instruct, just to give orders. And so in saying those who rule well, Paul isn't trying to uh, distinguish between one class of elders that, are, that do their job well and others that are lousy at leading. Uh, that, should be, that shouldn't be taking place. Um, if you 
identify the right people. What he's trying to say is that there's going to be some who do a good job because they're laboring in preaching and teaching. And there's going to be some who are able to teach, but yet they devote their time to other things like their own job that they have each week. So he's distinguishing for those who are paid by the church um, and who labor daily to prepare uh, like I do Sunday after Sunday and during the week to teach and those who are, uh, you might say, lay elders. So those who are paid and, and those who are not distinguished based upon time and how they labor. They labor in preaching and teaching. And so the phrase ruling well and preaching and teaching, really, they're equated. It's it's the way they lead well. They lead well through preaching and teaching by accurately interpreting the word of God and clearly explaining its implications upon our lives. And it's worth noting that those who lead well are also those who labor at their work. This is the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15.10. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Hard work. He says the same thing in 2 Timothy 2.6. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. That's an analogy he used as he's explaining what a pastor should look like. Hard work should characterize the elder who devotes himself to preaching and teaching. Remember what God said in Ezekiel 34 regarding shepherds who were uh, looking over the flock, not in the interest of the flock, but in the interest of themselves. He says this about the shepherds of Israel, Ezekiel 34, verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. A few verses later, he says in verse 10, Thus says Yahweh God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding on the sheep. His point is he expects his shepherds to do their job, to work hard, to not be lazy so that sheep don't want to wander off, to not just be thinking about their own interests, what they can get out of their responsibility, but to care for the sheep. And, And after all, these elders are called to be leaders in the church, the pillar and support of the truth. You don't want irresponsible or careless or cavalier people who are lazy in that position. The responsibility is far too great. Given what the church is, it should have the hardest working, the best laborers, not just you know anybody you can find that's willing to take on responsibility. He says specifically are to work hard at it, preaching and teaching, uh, literally in the word and teaching. Uh, Paul doesn't use the normal word for preaching, uh, kerygma or even eulongizomai, uh, but he uses a general word referring to public speaking. It's actually the word lego, the word word. They, they labor in the word 
and in teaching. So these elders who should be compensated for their work are those who work hard to first rightly understand the word and rightly understand good doctrine. And then secondly, effectively communicate that to the rest of the church. And, And due to the difficulty of this, the church should be ready and willing to want to free men up to get the time to do this well. They need time to do this. Again, because of the both the difficulty and the significant responsibility, if they don't do it well, the consequences could be awful. And so they should be willing to provide for the men who will lead and teach them in this way. And to defend this point, Paul references Deuteronomy 25.4. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Paul actually mentions the same text. We saw it in the scripture reading earlier in 1 Corinthians 9. And he explains that God's not worried about oxen when he says this. He's, he's establishing a principle that those who labor should be fed. Just in general, an ox should for its work, but so should a servant serving in a field. And here, of course, so should an elder if they are uh, sowing spiritual things. They should be able to reap some material things as well. And it's interesting, verse 1 Corinthians, and here he applies Deuteronomy 25, 24 to the, to the fact that pastors themselves, elders, should be paid for their work. The second phrase that he uses, the labor is worthy of his wages, actually isn't an Old Testament quote. He's actually quoting Christ himself. Uh, Christ in um, two parts, uh, two places in the gospel uh, said this. He said the labor is deserving of his wages in Luke 10, 27. And uh, he made the same case in Matthew 10. Uh, speaking when Jesus sent out his disciples, he said, Take no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So the principle is simple. The church members should be willing and eager to provide the needs for those who devote their lives to serving them. But they should also be willing to do that work without any self-interest either. And I say that because there's a danger for, for men to pursue ministry as a career, as a job. And they, and they often, pastors often think of their work as a job. But Jesus warns against such a mercenary mentality in John 10. He says this in John 10:12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he doesn't care for the sheep. In other words, he's doing that job because he's getting a paycheck. He's not doing it because he cares for the sheep. Jesus says you don't want that kind of shepherd. If a person insists on getting paid, you've got to question their motives. Now, Again, we've just looked at they deserve to be paid if they're devoting their time and energy. But that should never be the motive. Ever. It's a mercenary mentality. And Paul explains that such shepherding should actually look like the example he gives. Why don't you turn in First Thessalonians chapter 2. And notice the selflessness that Paul Um, exemplified in his work amongst the Thessalonians. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. 
He said, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. It's like we didn't do this for money. Nor do we seek glory from people. Right? You didn't do it for esteem, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So not like the world that seeks money and seeks respect in their work. He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. But you had become very dear to us. Paul says a very similar thing in Acts 20, 24. And anyway, he says, my own life, I do not count my I don't count it dear to myself except that I may finish the course, the responsibility the Lord's given to me to testify fully to the gospel of the grace of God. The, the only thing that should motivate a person in their ministry is a desire to be faithful to the work they've been given to do. Now, that's what should motivate them, but it's also okay to provide for them on account of the work that they're performing and to do so out of love, just like we should provide for widows or anybody else that's in need. So elders of, with, with this sort of heart who lead by example, these are the men that should be honored. Secondly, they should also be protected from false accusations. Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that word charge means a formal accusation as, it's, as if it's brought into court. Like the previous principle, this, this one also is rooted in Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 19.15, where it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with an offense that he's committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And this principle just continues into the New Testament as a critical aspect of church discipline. Right? Jesus actually teaches that the, the second step in church discipline, after, you, after an individual is confronted a believer in sin, the second step is to bring another brother or two um, to confront the person. And if, if they witness that still this, this brother or sister does not want to repent from sin, then they need to bring it to the elders of the church. That's in Matthew eighteen sixteen. And so this admonition demonstrates that the church should be slow to uh, embrace any accusation against an elder in the church. And that's important for us to see because if we're honest, we're all uh, cynical, right? It's easy to believe, man, we all got sin and and we're just waiting to see when the next sin is going to be exposed from the next pastor. It's easy just to think, well, that everybody's got some deep, dark, hidden motive or hidden sin. Well, that's just not true. But it's easy to think that way. It's also just easy to be attracted to other people's failings. And because when we hear that other people fail, especially those who are respected and well-liked, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, we don't feel as bad about our own failures. And so we're attracted to dirt for the wrong reasons. And so just, just knowing that, there's a danger But there's another danger in why we should not just readily accept an accusation of sin against an elder. And that's because 
This is precisely how Satan works. He has been an accuser of the brethren. He's described that from the beginning. He seeks to slander. He seeks to undermine. He seeks to destroy, particularly those in spiritual leadership. Right? Jesus said in Matthew 10.25, If they have called the master of the, hell, of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, did Jesus ever get maligned? Did he ever get falsely accused? Yeah, he was hung on the cross for it. That was his kind of, that was his daily bread. False accusations constantly. Well, if he himself, the leader, received that, his point is, what do you expect the leaders he appoints to experience? Even more. Like he's trying to tell the church that you should expect your leaders to be falsely accused. Especially if they're doing the right job. Because those are the ones Satan's going to want to take down. And he's going to do so by slander, by gossip, by false accusation. And so don't believe such accusation unless it's been confirmed by two or three witnesses that indeed this man does not want to repent from his sin. He is being stubborn and he is holding fast to his sinful lifestyle, whatever he's been caught up in and will not repent. So this principle shows that um, elders, again, should be men that you trust. It highlights all the more why we need to be very slow and very purposeful to make sure that the people we put into this position are people we fully trust. That these are the last people you would believe would receive such an accusation. Because you know them so well. They've demonstrated it time and time again. We need to believe that before they get into the office. Not just hoping that, you know, hopefully 10 years down the road, they'll mature enough where I'm, I'm pretty confident they will not be caught up in some sort of unrepentant sin. We need to be very slow, and we'll get to this later, to affirm men for such an important re- responsibility. But at the same time, at the same time, we can't be naive to the fact that there will be some elders who do fall away who are unrepentant and get caught up in grievous sin. And we're well aware of that. It happens all the time in the American church. And Paul says that when that happens, such men need to be publicly rebuked. Look at verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, word rebuke just simply means to point out that person's sin. Let the person know very clearly what it is that they're doing wrong. Like there should be some objective sin that they're committing. Not just you hurt my feelings. Not just I don't like the way you lead. I don't, I don't like your tone of voice when you preach. Or There needs to be some clear objective sin that they can repent from. Right? And so that's what gets confronted. That's what... That's what gets announced and that they are unwilling to repent despite the fact that they have been confronted in this sin. This is the same word that's used in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Rebuke him. The idea is just communicating to him what specifically has he done wrong? How is he offending God? How is he hurting other people? And so Paul is just simply calling Timothy in the church to follow this general standard of church discipline as established in Matthew 18. 
The only difference is that when that initial charge is presented, the church should be very slow to believe it unless it's confirmed with two or three witnesses. And that's just a good principle for us to keep in mind in general, but especially true of elders because of their work and because of Satan's tactic to want to take leaders down. We should be very slow to believe it unless we see other two or three other people say, yeah, it's, it's true. It's confirmed. This man is unrepentant. And notice that Paul hopes that publicly rebuking the elders will bring about fear in others. Paul is probably thinking of Deuteronomy 13, 11 when he says this, because he's already been quoting Deuteronomy. And that, that passage actually speaks to when uh, in Israel there was a false prophet that would rise up. He, he speaks at, Moses speaks at length as what needs to be done to that false prophet and those who witness such a false prophet. And then he says this in Deuteronomy 13, 11. They need to kill them, the false prophet. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. Right. So Paul, like Moses, is is wanting to guard God's people from such wickedness. This needs to be publicly exposed and dealt with because of the severity of a, a person who claims to speak and teach on behalf of God to lead the people of God who is then caught up in unrepentant sin. It's, it's directly counter to what they've been called to do. And so the people need to fear the consequences of such evil. Verse 21 goes for, uh, further to, and demonstrates that Paul's concern here actually is um, that Timothy and, and possibly other leaders would actually be slow to follow the Matthew 18 process. Notice what it says. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Okay. He's really serious. Like calling on all three of those is meant to draw our attention. Don't fail in this, Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Because Paul knows, he's a fellow elder. He knows that Timothy knows these men. Maybe these men have stood up for him at other times. Maybe they've provided for him in his weakness. Maybe these guys are friends, people he himself has trusted. And therefore, it's going to be very difficult for Timothy or other elders to want to follow through in publicly rebuking them. And he's saying, don't hold back. Not out of cruelty, but because this is something we cannot send in leadership, we cannot take lightly. It's a big deal. So, yes, it's true. Elders are flesh and blood like the rest of us. We're all prone to sin. And yet. They need to be confronted when they are out of line. Remember what happened to Peter on the night when Christ was betrayed. Right. Leader in the church. And yet he himself betrayed Christ three times, denied him three times. And then later on, when he was serving as an apostle uh, in the church of Antioch, he came to the Antiochian Christians. And Paul says this in Galatians 2. When Cephas, Cephas, referring to Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, force the Gentiles to live like Jews. Paul knew, even though he, had, he respected Peter, even though he loved Peter, and maybe even Peter was doing this somewhat unintentionally. He obviously was purposeful, but he, the, 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 there was, there was, it was complicated, right? But he needed to call Peter out on this sin publicly. Now, it wasn't permanent. Peter was restored. Peter continued to have a great ministry for the rest of his life. But Paul's point is, when such error gets propagated, it needs to be called out publicly. Paul didn't waver despite Peter's reputation and their friendship. And it's this principle of guarding the church from scandal that leads Paul to his next point regarding elders. When he says, don't be hasty in appointing them. Look at verse 22. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. As I mentioned back in chapter 4, verse 14, this practice of laying on of hands was a way of symbolizing absolute confidence in this person's readiness to be an elder. And it, it draws on this Old Testament imagery where a lamb would take the place of the sinner. They would lay their hands on them and, and essentially kind of um, identify personally with this lamb. And that lamb would take on the representation of the person they're representing and be killed in their place. And so when the elders lay hands on a new elder, they're proclaiming that this person is an extension of our ministry. This person uh, we personally identify with. Whatever he does, we affirm. Now think of the danger in that. Whatever he does, we affirm is right. We have such confidence in them. That's, that's what's signified by this laying on of hands. Personal identification. It's as if they're saying, we have such confidence in this man that whatever they do, we do with them. And that's why Paul makes this follow-up statement, don't take part in the sins of others. If Timothy affirmed a man who wasn't ready to be an elder, and then that man went and failed in some way, Timothy failed with him. That's Tim- Timothy uh, is in part responsible. He's liable to this man's sin or misinterpretation of the word. And the church today largely ignores this principle. But God doesn't. Even if the even if seminaries say, you know, it's not our fault, it's not our job to check a man's character just to teach him information. And even if churches say, well, it's not our job to train a man for ministry, that's what the seminary does. That's not good enough for God. I mean, really, that's no different than what Pilate did. Right? He just, well, okay, this is what the Jews do. Well, that's on them. They just Pilate just washed his hands. Well, he might have washed his hands for himself, but God wasn't buying it. Pilate was still responsible for what happened to Christ. And likewise, those who affirm a person for ministry are as complicit as Pilate was with the Jews 
who demanded Christ's crucifixion. If they affirm him by giving him a degree or by um, ordaining them or affirming them into eldership, they're as complicit in that person's failures as that person is themselves. And to some extent, the church is too. So this is something we need to take very seriously. Now, we want to be ready and eager to put men in a position of leadership, right? There's this tension. We want a plurality of leaders in this church. But we also want to make sure it's, it's people we absolutely trust. I mean, I, I say absolutely, right? We all know everybody's prone to sin. But at the same time, that these are the least likely people that would lead the church in a bad direction. And so Timothy will keep himself pure by not hastily affirming a man for leadership. Paul then writes, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So what's this about? It's this kind of random parenthetical statement. And, and honestly, Bible interpreters are confused. Nobody really knows for certain what this is doing um, in this passage. And there's really three possible explanations for this verse. Most commentators suggest that it is just a brief parenthetical statement where Paul all of a sudden just thinks of Timothy and offers him some random medical advice. Really has nothing to do with the context. It's just, it is just purely random. Paul is showing random care for his friend. But I I struggle with this because Paul is never random. (laughs) He is always very purposeful And so this would be like the anomaly. Is it possible? Yes. But I just struggle to believe that that's what happened. Secondly, a better interpretation, I think, is that Paul is calling out specific false teaching here. Um, Because we know that some of the there were some false teachers in Ephesus because he dealt with this in first Timothy chapter four, three, who were teaching asceticism. That is that they were abstaining from things that were good certain foods, even marriage. And quite likely, wine was one of those things. And maybe Timothy, in wanting to cater to their preference of not drinking wine, was abstaining from wine, but to his own hurt. And therefore, it was causing some gastrointestinal issues or something. And Paul is saying, okay, don't buy into those bad leaders teaching. Ignore them. Just take a little wine for your stomach and you'll be fine. It's not going to offend God. So that's possible. Another option is that Paul is simply offering an analogy for his exhortation not to affirm elders too quickly. So, um, we, you notice that aside from this statement, there's just this clear flow of thought in verses 22 to 25. So it would also make sense that Paul is using an analogy here just as he did when he was defending his previous points by going back to Deuteronomy and the ox treading grain and his, his reference to laborers deserving their wages. So he's used analogies already. The problem is, if this is an analogy, what does the analogy mean? It's not clear. Maybe uh, it would mean something like uh, drink wine. Wine has kind of a it has alcohol in it. It kills bacteria and you will be preserving the church from infection if you do not lay hands hastily upon a person. You will keep the church and yourself pure. That's a possible interpretation. The problem is we have no example of such an analogy in the Bible or in any other 
extant resource at that time. So at the end of the day, we really just don't know what this phrase is is doing. But those are the those are the possible interpretations. So regardless of if if we can identify what it is, Timothy certainly knew what Paul was talking about. Right. If, if he gets this letter from Paul and he and he and he and it says, you know, take a little wine for your stomach. And he's thinking, I don't have any stomach problems. What's Paul talking about? Clearly, Paul's probably using an analogy. But if he does have stomach problems, it's like, oh, OK, yeah, I can go back to drinking wine again. It would make sense to Timothy, even if it's not absolutely clear to us. But what we can know for certain is what Paul's main point is in this context. And Paul's main point isn't wine. His point is be slow to affirm men into a position of church leadership. That's the main point. That's the thrust of what he's saying. And that's clear, as he says in verse 24. He explains the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and those that are not cannot remain hidden. Paul's point is, the readiness of a person to be in church leadership will be evident in time. Over time, it will be obvious. If they're good people, their good works will be exposed eventually. And their readiness to serve in that capacity. If they're wicked, they have bad motives. Or if they have, uh, they're irresponsible in their teaching, that will be exposed in time. Don't feel like you've got to rush the process. Time is the best proof of a person's readiness for church leadership. That's the point. Jesus himself said, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Right? Jesus, Jesus was referring to false teachers there. And his point is, in time, the motives of a person's heart and their abilities will be evident. And not just evident to a few select people. It will be evident to everybody. Either way, eventually it becomes clear. Simonides of Chios famously said, There is no better test of a man's work than time, which also reveals the thoughts which lay hidden in his breast. Right? Time is the most effective method for testing anything. Be that ideas or strategies or motives or men. Time will tell. And so speaking of time, I should probably bring this message to a close. Paul's point again is that we need to honor church elders, especially those who labor in uh, the word and in teaching and uh, provide for them if necessary. Secondly, we need to protect them from false accusations. And if they're found to be an unrepentant sin, we need to be faithful to rebuke them publicly, even though their elders and their friends and their people who have served us um, sacrificially already. Most importantly, though, we need to resist the temptation to be too hasty in appointing men to the position of leadership because of the, the responsibility and the weight of their calling. 
We need to make sure that we have the right men and they're, they're fully ready, fully equipped for the task that uh, we're appointing them towards. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, we know nobody's, nobody's perfect. Lord, we all have ways in which we need to grow. And Lord, even church leaders, Timothy, Paul himself, described his own fight against sin. Lord, we know you don't want or expect perfection in each one of us. Or you want, but you don't expect perfection in each one of us. But Lord, you also have a high standard. And so I pray that you would uh, give us wisdom as a church to rightly discern the right men uh, for eldership within this church, both now and in 10, 20, 30 years to come. That we would not be hasty, but we also wouldn't be stingy either and unrealistic in our expectations. But give us guidance. Lord, we, we do desire for this church to be full of godly men whether they're elders or just those who lead their families well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.